we're going to go ahead and get started with our class. I'm, I'm never one to know whether I've got 45 minutes worth of material or 75 minutes worth of material. So we're going to go ahead and get started. And if it's um, uh, 35 minutes of material, I guess we'll be done a little earlier. Um, last week we had a, uh, a fine lesson, one of seven, delivered by Brother David Sproul. And uh, that um, gave us a break in our quarterly study of the book of, book of Psalm. And uh, uh, 150 chapters in Psalms, um, 12 or so uh, weeks in a quarter, obviously that's covering a lot. But I, I think Neil's plan was to cover selected Psalm. Last week, or two weeks ago, he gave us kind of an introduction to that. Today is uh, September 17, 2023. On May 5th, 1922, an event happened that I'm reminded of today. Now, none of us were around on May 5th, 1922. We're all here on September 17, 23. How are those two events related? Well, on May 5th, 1922, a guy by the name of Bob Fats Fothergill pitched hit for Ty Cobb. Um, so call me Fats. Um, which I am, and I, I'm pitch hitting for Neil, which I'm glad to do, of course. Uh, but he got us off to an excellent start, but didn't get very far in, in the lessons that he planned on presenting. If you still have your outline, outline from two weeks ago, um, I, I've tried to pick up with that outline, with the outline that I've got. Now, I made a few changes, but generally, um, we're, we're going to um, go with that, and then we're going to go a little bit further than that. And to, yes, sir. <laughs> if you follow Ty Cobb, how do you think he did? <laughs> I don't know how he did at that bat. At bat. <laughs> but I had to research to get his name, I can tell you that. <laughs> okay, to get us started, uh, uh, Dale is going to read Psalm 8, uh, please. So if you will, open your Bible to Psalm 8. And give your attention as Dale reads those nine verses. So, Dale, in your good radio disc jockey voice, uh, loudly uh, read for us Psalm 8. Okay, now in in Psalm 8, we're going to see and we're going to dwell on really uh, three, I'm not going to call them themes, I'm going to call them ideas that are expressed here. And uh, if this is even the first time you've read or heard read, uh, Psalm 8, what, what, what's, what's obviously one of those ideas? What is it? I'll give you a hint. Genesis 1. The creation, yeah, yeah, the, the glory of God's creation. And maybe it's Genesis 1 and 2, but it's certainly Genesis 1. The second one would be uh, what? Related to that. What is it? Uh, His majesty, but the, uh, what I'm thinking of is the, the order or the place that man, and I'm talking about men and women, of course, the, a God-created man, uh, the order that man has uh, in, in that creation. And then third, it's a little more subtle, I, I guess, but there's a reference there to the Son of Man. Uh, I remembered something uh, when I was preparing that, that Neil said, and I did a little digging on that. Uh, he, he told us that there were, in the book of Psalm, 150 chapters, or 100, yeah, 150 chapters, There are 2,461 verses and 42,704 words. Here we've got nine verses, and I counted them, 167 
words in the New King James Version. So we've got 0.39% of the verses, I'm sorry, 0.36% of the verses and 0.39% of the words. That's one-third of 1% of Psalms. The whole book is right here in uh, Psalms chapter 8. That seems like not very much, but it's interesting to me that about 50% of Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament, either quoted by Jesus or said or written through inspiration by somebody else about Jesus. Uh, The whole book of Psalms is, of course, um, a poetic book. It's a, a book of poetry, and this is a very excellent, though short, poetic reflection of the creation that we read about in Genesis 1 and 1 and 2. It's also a messianic psalm since there's a reference to Jesus there. And it's also one that touches on, if not dwelling on, both praise and wisdom that seems to be intertwined throughout some of these verses. I want to first visit that phrase, the son of man that you visit him. That's the New King James Version uh, phrase. Dale, I believe, was reading from King James. Is that right, Dale? Uh, What is that? New American Standard, okay. The son of man that you visit him. Now, uh, when I read that, uh, or when I paused at that, I thought, son of man. Well, you know, that's in the, the New Testament. Uh, it's in the Gospels. And what gospel came to mind or comes to mind more quickly when we think of that phrase, the son of man? Where is it the most? Where are your Bible scholars? Who knows that? Or who wants to take a shot at that? Don't, you only got four possibilities, of course. Which one is it? Anybody want to guess? It's Luke. It's Luke. Luke mentions uh, or uses the phrase, or in effect he quotes Jesus, uh, referring to himself as the Son of Man 26 times. Now I thought uh, that, that, you know, that, that was dominant, and it is a majority, uh, but it's also in Matthew 13 times, in Mark 15 times, and in John 12 times. Now granted, some of these references overlap. It's, you know, Luke saying the same thing, or writing the same thing that Matthew does, so... Uh, it's filled, the Gospels are filled uh, with this phrase, the Son of Man. Uh, now, I, I, I tend to think that, uh, that that phrase, it says in my New King James Version, the Son of Man that you visit him. One of the commentaries I read, uh, um, uh, I won't say dwelled on, but kind of pointed it out to maybe a little clearer than I ever had before. Uh, um, the writer David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. And he seems to be using visit as, uh, Dale, I'm going to come visit you. Uh, Dale, I'm going to come visit you. It's like he's saying, uh, the writer, David, is saying to God, what is man that the son of man visits us? Uh, You sent the son of man to come to us. So David, in effect, is being prophetic toward the use of the phrase son of man, which would come uh, years later, of course. You're mindful of him. You're mindful of man that you sent the son of man uh, to visit us. Yes. You care for him. Yeah, you care for him. Yep. You send the son of man because you care for him. Um, You know... uh, I'm also, and I, I did a little digging on this, and uh, you know there are a lot of chapters in the Bible as a whole, but I think, uh, I googled it and I looked in a few other places that I thought I could find an answer to, but I believe this is the only chapter 
in the Bible that has something that, 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 that's very unique. What do you notice uh, quite unique about the structure of the way this, uh, these nine verses are presented? Anybody catch that when Dale read it? I'll give you a hint. The, the, there's something unique about the structure uh, of, of the writing of this. I'll give you a hint. Bookends. Verse 1 or the first half of verse 1 and verse 9 are exactly the same. And if you read that, uh, in, in my Bible, that first verse or first phrase or first sentence, 1A, uh, ends with an exclamation mark. It's like David is saying, Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Uh, but you could read that, especially because it's got that word how in there, which generally is a word that you find in a question. Uh, he might be saying, uh, just how excellent is your name in all the earth? Uh, I, I think he's making a statement and then following up that statement with saying, well, I know how excellent your name is because of this and this and this. And then he closes the, the chapter by repeating how excellent, in case you didn't get it, how excellent is your name, God? But even if you think that it's a question he's asking, uh, he asks a question, and then he answers his own question. And then, to drive the point home, in verse 9, he repeats that question or makes the affirmative statement there. But the point that he's making is that the name of God in all of the earth is excellent. He's proceeded to answer all of that by uh, pointing out some critical uh, facts and he's, he's saying really it's more than just the physical creation it is that look about you uh, step outside on any day and you can see physically how excellent God's name should be uh, God's fingerprints are everywhere I doubt looking around and seeing the age of everybody in here I doubt if there's any of us that has not stood some morning and watched the sunrise or some evening and watched the sunset and if you've seen that over the ocean or have you seen that over the mountains? Or have you been out Big Reedy at sunrise? Russell sends a picture about once a week of the Big Reedy sunrise. And so I get to see that. Uh, but it doesn't take too many sunrises for me to think, wow, how majestic is God? Uh, if you've ever stood at the foot of uh, the Smoky Mountains or if you've ever been in Estes Park, Colorado at the foothills of the Rockies, uh, you get the same impression. But you don't have to. You don't have to stand at the foot of mountains or look at a sunrise. You can sleep late and be in the, the, the great plains if you want to. You still can see the majesty of God and looking at his footprints just everywhere. Go out to um, Todd Dickerson's farm when the soybeans are at their greenest or the corn is about chest high or head high. And it looks like a putting surface. You can putt for a quarter of a mile if you want to, and it, the ball would not waver at all. It, it's just... Uh, um, Majestic. Everything about God is majestic. Now, I know that uh, uh, that's important, and I'm glad uh, of that. But the real point that David is making here is not necessarily that the majestic, the, the ma majesty uh, comes in the, the physical things that you and I can see and experience, but he points, as does Genesis. Uh, we are created in the image of God. And I know the fall of man uh, hit that image pretty hard and it uh, devastated it. It severed it in some respects. But God had a plan in motion uh, and uh, 
Uh, now that image is refocused because of what Jesus did. He was, he was our reconciliation, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians. And what was it uh, when Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father? What was Jesus' response? Who remembers that? That's John 14, 9, I believe. Show us the Father. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I, I, I've read that verse scores of times, and you have too. Um, but I, I've got a new appreciation for it now because I don't think Jesus was saying, if you cast your eyes on me, if you're eyeballing me right now, you've seen the Father. Maybe he was saying that, and in part he was saying that. But I think he was saying more than that. He's saying that if you're like me, if you're like me, you're like the Father. That's the scene he's talking about. It's not a physical with the eye scene. It's a spiritual with the heart through faith seeing of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Imitators of Jesus Christ reflect the image of God. God created us as special creatures uh, with special purposes. And uh, according to Jesus, we're supposed to act like God and we're supposed to love like God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. But all, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, no question about that. In fact, the Genesis account, it, it's like it doesn't say it in so many words, but it, I think I infer it, at least, that we're the crown jewel of God's creation. Uh, we're the last that was created, uh, and we're the special part, because we're the only people that were created for the purpose of worshiping God. Yes, yes. But... but uh, um, uh, Look, look at that question, though. Uh, what is man that you're mindful of him? And, and uh, I want to point out again, what is man that you're mindful of him? Both genders are referred to there. How does an atheist answer that question? What is man? God, God, what is man that you're thinking about me? How does an atheist answer that question? He or she doesn't. Because an atheist doesn't believe in God and has no spiritual relationship with any higher being. Um, um, effectively, if, if, if a, 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 a confirmed atheist knows he or she is at the point of death, they have no more hope or no more dread than does a buzzard at the point of death or a snail or a tree uh, because they don't consider themselves special and have a special relationship with God. The same really could be said of a person who's a humanist that... Uh, they, too, reject any idea of deity. They may not be atheists. They may be agnostic or not, but they don't believe in an afterlife. And they only seek happiness. Same thing for a hedonist, a pleasure or the absence of pain. That's what their focus is. And any action that's taken or course of action that's taken is justified simply because uh, of the principle of, is it good for me? Uh, will it give me pleasure or will it help me avoid pain? Uh, that's... Uh, of course, um, some of the people that might be wrapped up in uh, um, ugly things, especially uh, drugs, things that might be offensive to God, um, they might be in the hedonist category. But even reading a good book brings pleasure. Uh, so if that's the, if they get more pleasure out of reading a good book than they do of assembling to worship, uh, then um, that's not a good thing. What is man? Well. Uh, I think David answers it. He says, man is an observer. And uh, he really answers that question before he asks the question or makes the statement. And even the youngest among us testified to that. Have you ever seen a, a small child chase a butterfly? 
Uh, they're just amazed at what a butterfly does and what a butterfly looks like. Um, what about um, the um, kids, the young folks, when uh, Jesus was in the temple and he goes through a series of, the uh, Bible just simply it doesn't specify what they were, but healing acts in the temple. And what, remember what the, the children uh, came out saying from the temple? What did they say? Hosanna, the son of David. What's the word Hosanna mean? What is, what is the word Hosanna? I don't know what it means, but Hosanna is a sign of praise. What did the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, what was their reaction to that? Do you see what these kids are saying? Do you see what they're saying? Praise you? Who are you different from me? Uh, that was their thoughts. And in response to that, Jesus quotes, uh, I believe it's verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Uh, that's one of the references uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so uh, Jesus um, makes the point that I think David makes years before. Man is an observer. He sees this. Uh, he's an object of great worth, David says. He's more than, than just a creation, as Chuck has pointed out. Uh, we're we're uh, better than angels. We're crowned with glory. We're crowned with honor. And we're a ruler of everything else that God has created. And then finally, man has uh, received a great gift. Uh, there's a messianic message there. And uh, that, is, uh, that message uh, is uh, uh, pulled into Hebrews chapter 2, uh, where the Hebrew writer is uh, in a, a, few, a lot more words than this, is, is expressing um, the idea that we should not neglect the great salvation that's provided for us. The Hebrew writer is saying, don't neglect the spiritual salvation. David is saying uh, or referring to, uh, save me or I want salvation from the pressing of my enemies on all hands. This is written probably at a time when he was uh, on the lamb because Saul was chasing him. And then finally, um, I want to point uh, uh, this out. Um, Let's praise God for his amazing creation. Let's thank God that, that we're created uh, for a particular purpose. We are the prime example um, of his marvelous creation. We were given a dignity by God. We've marred that dignity through sin. But again, praise God for providing for our redemption. Now, in conclusion, I, I want to say this. This morning, and I'm going to do it maybe to a deeper extent than I've done before during worship service. I'm going to try to thank about how valuable we are in God's eyes. And I'm going to try to let my heart overflow with joy and adoration more than it has before. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All right, now, the inner Hiram Kempim is going to come out. I'm going to cover Psalms 9, 10, 11, and 12 in 10 minutes or less. Uh, so open your Bibles. Uh, to Psalms 9, and I'm going to point out some things. And this is uh, some of it's covered on, on your outline. Uh, Psalms 9 and Psalms 10 were, uh, some people believe, written at the same time, and they were really part uh, of the same psalm. They were split later for some reason, but apparently Psalms 9 and 10 at uh, one time were combined. Um, it may have been written to celebrate David's victory over Goliath. David praises God uh, over the, because of the power over his enemies, that is, God's enemies, and even David's enemies. He praises God because God is continually with him, uh, even though David is remembering uh, his battle injuries and his setbacks. Uh, 
the last uh, six verses of this close with a forward look. Now, that's a look that's affirmed in the New Testament that there's going to be a day of final judgment. And I picked out two key verses. I, I, I mentioned those. I didn't print them, but I mentioned those uh, on your handout. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. Matthew 6:33. You, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalms 10 asks the question, where are you, God? But it also praises God for being a just God. Um, God's not far off. He vindicates his people, especially caring for those of little significance or little importance. Uh, it talks about the importance of prayer in times of trouble. I picked out two key verses. Verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. And verse 14, but you have seen, talking about God, you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Psalms 11, God is in control. Here David is uh, tempted to run from his enemies in great fear because he's about to be overcome. Uh, But he tries to convince himself that I need to confront them. Uh, Instead, David knew He knew what would happen to God's family if he gave up. And so I ask myself, uh, in in the little spiritual world in which I exist, in the context that I have, I'm not a king, uh, the king of God's people especially, uh, but if, if the foundation of the spiritual house is going to be shaken a little bit because I gave up, then by all means I need to find some new reservoir of strength as David did in the writing of this psalm. The righteous can keep on trusting God because the righteous have foundations that cannot be destroyed. Key verse, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, The minor prophet Habakkuk 2.20 adds uh, eight words to that. What, What are they? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Yeah, we've got a, a, a song that we sing frequently of that, a, a, a great song. Um, the righteous can keep on trusting God. Key verse, number two, uh, it's verse seven. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. He's watching the upright. Psalms 12 is uh, one of the songs of lament. And he's saying here, don't fail to take note what our adversaries are saying. There's a basic contrast, he's saying, a real contrast between the reliable words of God and what the people who are opposed to God have to say. Maybe not at that moment, but over a period of time, their words are always going to be flattering, they're going to be engaging, and they're going to be deceitful. If they are opposed to God, you're going to need to put their words on a scale and what God has said on the scale, and then figure out which one carries more weight. Uh, that's what David wants us uh, to know. We, like David, should pray for God's intervention to deliver his own. Verses 6 and 7, I believe, are the key verses where he says the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, seven being a perfect number, of course. You shall keep them, O Lord, You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The steadfast nature of the Lord 
stands behind what he has said. He has never veered from anything he says. And that is something that is worth more than silver and gold. Uh, We can trust the words of God. We're going to now go to uh, uh, Psalm 13 and a little more detail in that. And Harold, would you be so kind, Harold Nix, to read Psalm 13, please? Okay, if you uh, have not done it, one um, one of the lessons recently we had on, on in the Monday night class on Peter's, um, Neil or Hiram one pointed out to us that First Peter four chapter thirteen, I'm sorry, verse thirteen, First Peter chapter four verse thirteen, uh, Peter is bringing up the same idea of I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. So you might want to write that in the margin and later on look at First Peter four uh, to give you a. Uh, a little more insight perhaps. This too is a lament psalm. Remember uh, Neil told us about the lament psalms. They're psalms that express deep sorrow, uh, deep regret, deep grief. Uh, They're all human struggles that we experience from time to time. It's also an imprecatory psalm. Anybody remember what that was? Neil mentioned that imprecatory psalm. What, What do they do? What are those psalms? Imprecatory. It's in effect God is being asked to bring a curse or disfavor on somebody for some particular reason. Uh, Some calamity is being asked to befall those who are perceived not as the enemy of the writer, David in this case, but as the enemy of of God himself, an imprecatory psalm. Now, when I thought about that a little bit, I thought, well, is David in effect being real, is he bad-mouthing? Are being ill of mind toward his adversaries to a degree that makes us a little disappointed in David. Uh, I want you to remember that the Psalms were written by inspiration, as all the Bible was. Uh, and so the Psalms are expressions of God and not complaints of the writer, David in this case. So David's experiences then, the things that he's gone through recently when he wrote this, have put him in such a position that God's intended message. For everybody who's ever read Psalms 13 is um, going to flow easily from David's uh, pen or quill, even though it's through inspiration. Uh, so let's, let's don't think evil of David or any other Psalms writer for these um, uh, imprecatory psalms. Uh, it's uh, primarily, though, lament psalm. Um, Neil pointed this out, I believe. Uh, lament psalms ordinarily bring a progression of thought from something that's not viewed as good to something that is, they end on a positive note. Usually, number thirteen, Psalm thirteen does this pretty well. David's complaint is uh, pretty direct. He feels forsaken, and again, it's because Saul is vigorously pursuing him, and he's at the point that, that he thinks Saul is going to uh, overtake him. So his request for, to God is, "Deliver me." He says. Look at me and answer my prayer. And I think the way Harold read that, um, the, the word look at me wasn't there. What is it? Consider? Maybe. Where is that, Harold? Yeah, consider and hear me. Consider and hear me, verse 3. Uh, David is saying, listen to me, God. Listen to me, God. But then he ends on a positive note. He goes from despair to the very height of confidence when he says, Uh, At the very end, that last verse, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He has before that a confession. I have trusted in your mercy. And then he makes that commitment to praise. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation.
How confident am I that God will answer my prayers? Prayers that I pray that you don't pray. How confident are you that the prayers that you pray that I'm I'm not going to pray because I don't know about that situation? How confident are you that that God is going to answer those prayers? Um, You know, I I, I thought about this uh, some when I was reading in in one of the commentary writers, and and then I had already stumbled across it. I, I thought David was being a little bit harsh here toward God. He's in effect, he's put his combat boots on and he's jumped on God with those hobnail boots and he's saying, consider me, Father, look at me and answer my prayer. Is that a little harsh? What would we think of somebody standing up here in this pulpit and he slammed his fist together and he said, God, hear our prayers. Is that being something that's absent of the reverence uh, that uh, we need when we approach God's throne? Well, it might appear to be that, uh, but the way David closes this lament prayer is very heart-wrenchingly promising. He says, despite all of this, despite the fact that I feel like I'm being neglected, God, I still want to worship you. I still want to praise your name, and it's simply because I know, I realize that you've dealt with me bountifully. I'm the most... Blessed person. I'll use another baseball analogy. What was it? Was it Ted Williams that says, I'm the, Harold, where are you? Harold Nix. Who was the baseball player that said, I'm the luckiest man on earth? Who was it? Lou Gehrig. Yeah, Lou Gehrig. I'm the luckiest man on earth. Uh, David is saying here, uh, you've dealt with me bountifully. Uh, so I, I, I'm not going to condemn David when I think he might be a little harsh in his um, discussion with God. He makes this commitment. He has great assurance My heart shall rejoice, I will sing to the Lord. Despite this gloom that he's facing. Yeah. I shall not be moved. We have a a song to that effect, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. I will not be shaken. One translation I think uses the word shaken. I will not be shaken. Yeah. Now, there's... One lesson that I think we need to get from this, we need to follow David's approach in times of trouble. Maybe he's already got a plan in motion that answers our prayers, and we just don't see the effects of it. We don't see him moving behind the scenes. So take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's move quickly to Psalms 14. Yes. Yes, Jim. I trust in your mercy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and one, one translation, I think it's a, uh, ESV, maybe the Revised Standard Version, says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Another way of expressing that. But yes, good comments, Jim. Okay, anything else before we jump to Psalm 14 in the few minutes we have left? I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah, yeah. And that thought's not original with us either, is it? It is not. But it's frequent with us if we're spending some time in prayer. Okay, Psalm 14, and I'm going to speed read through this. I don't think I asked anybody to read it, but I'm going to read this to you. So I'm reading from the New King James Version. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? 
There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. I came up with six questions on on this, but first... Uh, let me tell you that this is a, it, it has a well-known line in it, which you picked up on, uh, I'm sure, is the fool has said it in his heart, there is no God, verse 1. Uh, this passage, um, or really verses 1 through 3, uh, is really, I'm going to say, quoted by Paul in Romans 3. And I, I, I read them both um, uh, more than once each, and it's not word for word in e- any of the translations I looked at, but... Uh, It's certainly Paul making reference to this. Paul says in Romans um, 3, verses 10 through 12, As it is written, as it is written, referring back to Psalms, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, on your outline, I've come up with six questions uh, so I'm going to try to give you six answers to those six questions, although I think there's more than one answer to some of them. First one is, with whom is the fool contrasted? And that word fool, if we go back to the misspent days of my youth at least, that word fool was used differently than what David is using it for here. Who's the contrast, the fool and who? No, it's contrast now. The fool on one side and somebody else on the other side. The righteous, yeah, the fool and the righteous. That's the contrast he's making. So anytime it says fool, I want you to think that that God is, or David is really talking about, or writing about the unrighteous versus the righteous. So keep that in mind. Uh, He's really talking about fool. Paul's purpose in Romans was to deal with the fact that he wanted all of us uh, to embrace the eternal salvation, that is, be saved uh, in an eternal or a spiritual significance. What, what David is really saying is he's seeking the salvation from the particular enemy of God and David who happens to be Saul. So David is looking at it from a personal perspective in his particular circumstances of serving God. Paul looks at it differently, but the application is certainly there. The fool is the one who says there is no God. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the next question on, on your outline is really a pretty easy answer. The fool's denial is most simply stated how? Four words. There is no God. Yeah. And um, I, I thought about this, and uh, you know, I'm a math guy, uh, and I had a few math classes, and, and I, I, I said that's a relationship that in math we call it isomorphic. Everybody knows what that means, don't you? Isomorphic relationship. Well, it really means that, uh, okay, here's, here's the way I, I would express it. The unrighteous say, there is no God. Someone who says, there is no God, is unrighteous. Is unrighteous. So no matter which way you look at it, the inverse is true. It, it stands up. No matter whether you look at it, the, the, uh, the person says there is no God, or anyone who says there is no God is unrighteous. Uh, it's preserved. Um, without uh, altering at all. Uh, what are the um, three, four words uh, that describe the deeds of the fool or the unrighteous? That's in verses 1b and 3. What, what do you see? And think about these words now. What are they? 
What's the C word? Corrupt. What's the A word? Abominable. And then there's an E word in there. Evil. Yeah, yeah. Abominable, of course, means morally unpleasant, repugnant, if you will. Uh, so those three words are three words that I don't want said about me. I, I don't want to be in the camp of the unrighteous, the fool. Uh, you also can make an argument that verse 2, um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, the Lord looks down to see if there are any who understand. Now, I'm not one to say that, that anybody is ignorant but I will say that uh, I agree with what David is saying here, that if a person is in the unrighteous camp, um, they're, they're, they're challenged. They're, they're, they're spiritually challenged, certainly mentally challenged. Um, in, which, in what manner does verse 4 imply fools are like a black locust fence post or more relevant around here, an oak fence post? How are the fools or the unrighteous like an oak fence post? You ever heard the expression, dumb as a fence post? If you talk to a fence post, what are you going to get? Nothing. Nothing. And do we expect a fence post to talk to God? No. So what David is saying, it's just like a fence post. If you're unrighteous, if you're in the camp of fools, you, you, you just can't communicate with God. You're not letting God communicate with you. Um, what's the biggest dread of the fool? What is it? Verse 5, God is not where? He's not on their side. God is on the team of the righteous. And uh, um, the fool is on the team of the unrighteous, of course, because he is or she is. Verse 7, when will the fool know her defeat is at hand? Well, uh, here I think is a, um, um, I think it's projected in the New Testament. Verse 7, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Where did Jesus come from? Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. I, I noticed on this, I thought, okay, the, the time David wrote this, uh, it's um, before his kingdom is in its glory, and before Solomon's kingdom, therefore it's before the divided kingdom. There has been no captivity. But David is saying the captivity of his people, what's he really talking about? What are his people held captive by? The three-letter word that Dale just mentioned, sin. And so he's saying that uh, let's look forward to the day when we're not held captive by sin anymore and let's the God, let God's family be glad at that. Now before we close, I want to go with a few practical lessons from Psalms 14. Um, first one, how does God know exactly who is seeking after him? I looked, uh, as I thought of the answer to this question, I, I, I looked in my concordance and some other places, and I found somewhere between 12 and maybe 24 New Testament passages that answered this question, some of them more specifically than others. God knows because, as verse 2 says, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. Romans 10.10, 10, for with heart one believes. 1 John 3.20, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Uh, the heart won't lie. And I, I remembered that old song. Vince Gill and Reba McIntyre had a Grammy Award-winning hit from 1993 that I really liked, um, although I'm not a great music fan in general. But that, that, uh, and that, that song talks about a romantic relationship between, of all things, a Quantico drill instructor 
and his prize uh, recruit, an uh, um, attractive young redheaded woman. Uh, and that, the verse of that song says, because the, the heart won't lie. Sometimes life gets in the way, but there's one thing that won't change. I know I've tried. The heart won't lie. You can live your alibi. Who can see you're lost inside a foolish disguise? The heart won't lie. The heart won't lie. Our hearts won't lie to God. We might be uh, presenting a false image, but God knows what's in the heart. Uh, and I think that what uh, our hearts need to reflect, um, I, I'm not going to mention all of them, but uh, go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's the passage we know as the fruits of the Spirit. Also look at 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. That's the passage, add to your faith and, and so forth. And it's remarkable to me how Paul writes one, sometime later Peter writes the other one, but they kind of overlap. They use almost the same words. And anything that's not covered in one is covered in general by another word or phrase in the other. Uh, and I ask myself, does that describe me? Am I living by the fruits of the Spirit? And if not, God's going to know that. What should our reaction be? Uh, in knowing God has restored the fortunes of his people? What was David's reaction? It was a great appreciation of salvation. Uh, so our reaction should be the same. We should rejoice at that, especially in worship period. Uh, God frowns on the actions of workers of iniquity, and in a couple of translations they're called evildoers, in two respects. And um, uh, this is something that I didn't see in this before I studied uh, this week. Uh, God frowns upon those who don't seek righteousness and do things that are contrary to his plans. And sometimes those things that are done offend us too. Those would be things that they do or sins of commission. But he also uh, frowns upon people who don't call on the Lord, sins of omission. Um, knowledge of what indisputable fact uh, gives us comfort? Well, um, we're not workers of iniquity. But we recognize that no threat can hinder God's purpose or God's plans. Uh, that was attempted in the garden, and man recovered from it. Uh, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, we still can recover from it. Uh, God's plans are not going to be altered. Right, there you are. Yeah, Isaiah picks up on it, doesn't he? That's all I've got, ladies and gentlemen. I think Neil is back next week, and he'll pick up. Somewhere in Psalm, yeah.